Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blurred Lines Online. Thank you for joining us. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land where I am, the Awabakal people, and to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. This is a virtual version of the session we were scheduled to hold at the Newcastle, Newcastle Writers Festival um, on Sunday, the 5th of April. It was going to be a paid session, but as we're now offering all content for free, if you are able to, you can donate via the Newcastle Writers Festival website, uh, as Newcastle Writers Festival is trying to raise some funds to ensure all writers get paid and to help support next year's festival. We won't be able to do live questions at the end as we would normally have done in, were we all together in one session, but I am hoping to possibly hold some one-on-one -on -one sessions with some of the writers. So if you do have questions, send them in after the session and I may be able to incorporate some of them in follow-on sessions. All right, so I'm, I'm gonna do a few bios just to begin with. Um, Maria Tumarkin in the, I guess, bottom right-hand corner, hopefully that's how it works out when you're looking at it uh, after now, is the author of books, essays, reviews, and pieces for performance and radio. She collaborates with sound and visual artists and has had her work carved into dockside tiles. She's the author of four books of ideas and the latest axiomatic, uh, published by Brow Books, won the 2018 Melbourne Prize for Literature's Best Writing Award, was shortlisted for the 2019 Stella Prize, Prime Minister's Literary Award, the Victoria Premier's Literary Awards, and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Um, and Maria holds a PhD in cultural history and teaches creative writing at the University of Melbourne. Nicola Redhouse, um, upper left-hand corner, <laughs> is the author of Unlike the Heart, a memoir of brain and mind. Her nonfiction appears in many places, including The Monthly, The Age, The Australian, and Island, and her fiction in Mianjin, Best Australian Stories, and Big Issue Fiction Edition. She's worked as a book editor since 2005 and teaches creative writing sessionally at RMIT and the University of Melbourne. Sophie Hardcastle, bottom left, um, is in, well, this is to me where I'm looking. So if, if I've got that wrong from how you're <laughs> looking at it, don't worry. Um, Sophie Hardcastle is author, artist, screenwriter, and scholar. In 2018, she was a provost scholar in English literature at Worcester College at the University of Oxford. Um, I went to Oxford, where she wrote Below Deck. <laughs> in 2017, um, I was at St. Cross. Sophie was an artist in resident with Chimu Adventures in Antarctica. Sophie is the author of the critically acclaimed Running Like China in 2015 and Breathing Underwater in 2016. She's the co-creator, co-writer, and co-director of the online series Cloudy River. And her latest work, Below Deck, was just published this month, and it's a haunting and poetic story about the vagaries of consent. So Maria, Nicola, and Sophie, welcome. Can I begin the session just um, by asking you to read a little bit from each of your books, just to give the audience some sense of the synergies and the themes and the very, very different styles as well. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe we can start with Maria. Is that all right? Sure. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, chapter three. Uh, everything now sounds different. So I have no idea. I've read this passage before, but I know it's going to sound like a very different uh, passage uh, with the world being the way it is. So I'll, I'll be 
sort of discovering things as I read and um, apologies if I stumble or abandon the, the passage uh, halfway through it. Um, okay. This morning, that morning rather, two men in my carriage lift their heads. Two men in their fifties in silky understated ties. Then there is a little snap, like a red light camera going off. And even before the next stop gets announced, they're leaning into each other laughing. How long has it been? Must be 40 years, give or take. What's been happening? They run through their classmates, two cancers, one meat chemo, one cannot hack chemo, a property development fraud, one guy, just the other side of a protracted settlement with too many ex-wives. Stupid bastard, he and them deserve each other. A pause. Please don't tell me it's all there is. Fraud, cancer, bad marriage peaks, being caught, extricating yourself. Chance encounters on city loop trains. Can you remember the last time life felt long or kind or like it was yours and mine? My phone vibrates, one time only for ticks. Make sure you don't have scissors, nail files, anything sharp, it's Vanda. Thank you, Vanda. Shh, in front of me is time. Time is not a river. It is two strangers on a train whose briefcases touch as they hold each other. Two men who'll never ride the same train again. I don't remember getting off or walking. Somehow I reached the courthouse doors in William Street in Melbourne, where my bed was screened, nothing sharp in it, and the structure that looked dull and huge on the outside, a building without qualities, was alive and brown inside with wrappers pulled off chocolate bars, doors slamming, others opening, kids in school uniforms who were not, as I'd guessed, witnesses to inexplicable suburban crimes, but legal study students bored on a field trip. Several of the magistrates look like Karl Heinrich Marx. In a lift I stared, stood sorry, next to a lawyer with the face of someone who sometimes forgets he hasn't yet seen it all. I looked at him. He looked at the crease in his hardworking pants. What is the court eight clerk wearing today? Orange jacket, there you go, bold choice for the setting. And what is court eight's loudest sound right now? My fine line of pen making notes about courtroom silence. Big silence in a room full of busy looking people is jarring. Then the magistrate appears. Once he's seated, that silence is gone. And to a man on the stand whose second drink driving offense is the day's first matter, he says, I cannot take your past away. And it is like some subterranean conversation underneath the one everybody can hear is flowing about how to be alive is to be caught in one web or another. I know your first offence was 20 years ago, but your past doesn't disappear. If police stop you, they'll test you. That's a quote from magistrate. The magistrate means it's your last chance. Your cufflinks cannot save you. The taxes you pay won't save you. He also means nothing is more human than the experience of feeling trapped. And everything is a trap. Your past, family, genes, addictions, loneliness, that feeling that pretty much everyone else is galloping gaily ahead while you're crawling backwards like a lobster or lopsided baby. I'll stop there. Mm, wonderful, thank you. Um, and I also wanted to just mention, I didn't mention in your bio, Maria, that you, Maria's just won the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Literature as well. So uh, well done, clap, clap. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Money exists uh, still when we get paid. Yeah, that's it's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's interesting. I'll tell you. Yes, but we'll be waiting here. All right, so Sophie, do you want to read a little bit from your, your maybe below deck? Yeah, of course. 
So I'm going to read the, the very first section, um, and it's called Dark Pink. You dying in your 20s is not romantic, he told me, his eyes dense black, half in shadow. He shook his head. It would be a waste. I remember that we were in my living room at the time and that I didn't say anything back. I thought about it for the word waste, swelling like an oil slick. I knew he was right. It would be a waste. But when I'd said I would die in my 20s, it was never about the romance of it, the old story of a younger artist perishing before her time. It was more of a knowing, a knowing that it was my time. I die on the eve of the day I was born, 29, almost 30. I've always liked the numbers 29, 2 and 9, much more than I've ever liked 30, 3 and 0. 2 is red and 9 dark pink. 3 is uneasy green and 0 is empty white. But contrary to what you might be thinking, I don't do it on purpose. Not really. Then again, maybe I do. We're made up of myriad choices, aren't we? I shrug shiver. It's cold here, on the wet stern deck, on the edge of this decade and the next. Beneath me, it is dark. Iceberg suspended in me. It is all spreading. And I look across at Brooke and she winks and I smile and it hurts my face. I hold my breath. Do we choose to breathe? I don't know. No, I don't know. I wish you'd told me the answer. I wish you'd told me a lot of things. Like that when I finally see the green flash, it will be equally amazing and dull. Or that life is a series of words and the punctuation is in all the wrong places and when you want to take a breath, someone has removed the comma so you have to take one there. And if you didn't, too bad, it's already gone. Maggie, I wish you'd told me. At sea, no one can hear you scream. I'll stop there. Thank you. And Nicola, do you want to? Sure. Um, I've chosen from midway through the book, um, chapter 13. What if my sister Joni was right and Freud's concept of an unconscious mind that must be made conscious to release us from its tyranny had no truth to it at all? If it wasn't scientific, could it still be true? Had I been duped by its intellectualism, its associations with literature and language and poetry, into believing it could help me understand that, that which was simply and purely biological, genetics, hormones, neurochemistry? Or was it just that I had not yet drawn out far enough the threads of story from my life, my family? Had I not gone far enough yet? All sciences are based on observation and experience that are mediated by our physical apparatus. However, as our science takes this apparatus itself as object, the analogy ends here. I thought about Freud's words scribbled into my notebook, sitting amid the detritus of my bedroom floor, where dust balls gathered over the week were now scattering violently from the impact of several small marble comic figurines that my son Noah was tossing about in play. I fancied it would make a good slow motion video, the rise and fall of all those particles in the buttery lamplight. Years before my other son Reuben was born, I'd read about the psychoanalyst Marion Milner, who'd become best known for her ideas about the value of becoming attuned to our unconscious thoughts and feelings through a method of introspective journaling. Milner, who wrote under the name Joanna Field, felt that people who had needed to protect themselves emotionally from more primitive states of thinking, states in which their sense of boundaries between themselves and others, and also in their environments are diminished, 
might become cut off from their more imaginative unconscious selves and out of touch with their self-deceptions. A child, for example, whose mother is emotionally ill might so strongly assert their logical cognitive thinking to preserve a sense of difference between themselves and their frightening mother. But this self-preservation, Milner said, sacrificed their imaginative self, the self that emerged in dreams and in fleeting thoughts that would give way to a true understanding of one's personal sense of meaning. She advocated keeping diaries of stream of consciousness thoughts, a focus on becoming attuned to the minutiae of your own mind's experiences. Milner's brother, Patrick Blackett, was a physicist working in experimental particle physics. He won the Nobel Prize for Physics for his investigations of cosmic rays using a cloud chamber, a particle detector used to pick up ionizing radiation. Blackett had invented a way of getting the chamber to compress more rapidly, making it even more sensitive. Two siblings, each interested in matter indecipherably small, but Blackett's was a material interest, while Milner's required observing the psychic apparatus itself, the mind. And that came with the inherent subjectivity that would foil any scientific endeavor. I'll stop there. So um, I'd, I want to begin talking a little bit about structure. And there are strong synergies, I think, with the themes of all of your work. Um, but they couldn't be more different, really, stylistically. So maybe since you're, you're already talking, um, Nicola, can you talk to me a little bit about how you developed the structure you used for the book, this kind of moving back and forth between, I guess, your own a personal story and then the research that you did that kind of looks at the whole universal aspects of, of what you were going through? Yes. But if I talk about it, it's going to make it sound like I had some um, idea of it and um, sense of what I was doing, which I did not. It was flailing in the dark. Um, what happened was I, I first became really interested in this intellectual idea about um, the question of whether Freud's theory of the unconscious had any scientific validity. And it was a very intellectual question at the time. And it arose because of a conversation with my sister, who is very science minded and who pointed out to me in a conversation about our father's work, who is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, um, that what he does, quote unquote, is a pseudoscience, which was a very disrupting question, uh, sorry, claim to make within my family. So I became interested in proving her wrong, which was very important to me. Um, but then I realized in the process of doing this uh, research that I had a very personal aspect of the story to tell about my own experience with anxiety postnatally and in, in other, um, times. Um, and then what became very important to me was this fact that I'm, I thought I needed to really um, honour this or, or kind of make sure that I told this personal story because what I'm trying to talk about in my book is about um, what we do about what it is to be human when we eradicate the felt experience of the individual. So then I had to find a way to make these strands come together and it ended up a kind of three-part um, thing thing. <laughs> I don't know, a thing. That's, that's how it happened. It's got the intellectual investigation, the personal story, and then personal story in past ways. Um, but it sort of, I, as I think everyone on this panel will understand, it took a long time for that to form any kind of works for a reader. And, and speaking of taking, taking a long time, <laughs> Maria, um, can you talk to me a little bit about your book? Oh, what do you mean, Maggie? I don't know why <laughs> that connection that you just made. Uh, I, no, honestly, I, I take great comfort 
from from the length of time that you know the wonderful axiomatic took because uh, I do think sometimes things do need to take time as you yourself have spoken about sometimes it really um, that time that that things take to to mature or to develop is is actually part of what that book needs um, but so I'm, I'm not at all <laughs> not at all criticizing you for it I'm I'm actually joyful that you don't spit out one book a year like some of my author friends do and I I look at you know with quite um, a great deal of envy and a little disgust. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about, about axiomatic. I, again, I know you, you started with the axioms and I know that was kind of the scaffold that the, the whole book began developing around, but it is quite, maybe in some ways like Nicholas, it is um, one that tends to go back and forth between almost what is happening in the moment, in that, in that real life moment. And then, you know, this kind of uh, almost permanent theoretical space which sits outside mm. of that? Um, it's, it's kind of, um, this book is unusual for me, not because it took forever, because I think just everything I do now takes forever. And I've, I think I've just resigned myself to that. Uh, and um, so thank you uh, in taking comfort in my um, um, uh, various failures. And uh, I take comfort in them too, and take comfort in talking to very openly um, about uh, almost taking a decade um, to write this book and walking away from it uh, many times and so forth. Um, normally I am um, someone who has no idea what I'm doing. And I think what Nicola described uh, as a kind of being in, in the dark, I think is my um, usual approach um, uh, in writing. Um, but with this particular book, I just needed some formal constraints, I felt, because I wanted to do, I wanted to move across so many things. Um, and I wanted to do a lot of kind of wild stuff at the level of um, a sentence, a paragraph, a, a chapter, and just a lot of mobility and movement between. Um, as you said, the kind of the, the current moment um, that I, um, I'm writing from and then the kind of other, other spaces of contemplation and discursive spaces and whatever. So I just had such kind of wild, crazy sort of uh, half, they were not plans, but they're kind of half intimations or like flashes of something that I was imagining for myself that I needed to, to have some kind of, some way to hold this thing together. I'm going to use um, Nicholas' very um, theoretically sound word thing to describe, um, <laughs> you know, to describe most things, but, um, but so, uh, so I think axioms came uh, to me as just as a way of like holding the tent down uh, in the winds. It's like the rocks that I could just put down on the ground. So the whole kind of construction doesn't fly away. Uh, and then within, within those, um, within the chapters that are kind of organized, but very loosely, uh, and differently around uh, my exploration of an axiom, then I could just do whatever I wanted to do, or so I told myself. So some formal constraints to allow kind of wildness and, and sort of hypermobility um, almost w w within each chapter. Mm. Mm. Yes. And, and Sophia, your books, I mean, in, in many ways, um, they're different because you've been working at least in the last two books on, in fiction. But I do feel um, Below Deck in particular, although I think both of your last two fictional books, Breathing Underwater as well, which I've read, um, they, though they are linear, 
in, in many ways and the way the story unfolds um, in a narrative sense, it seems to me that um, that scaffold or, um, you know, what, what Maria described as, you know, these flags or these um, rocks on the ground um, seem to be these moments that happen, these sort of pivotal life moments, really. Um, that can be traumatic. They are often traumatic pivotal life moments. So sometimes they are positive ones as well, but they're, it, it almost seems that those are, that, that's the scaffold um, that you've built those, both of your novels and, and probably if I think about it as well, your, your memoir around, is that the, these critical moments, is that, does that sound right to you? Yeah, definitely. It does. Um, like my first thought was when I was in, when I was studying at Oxford, when I was writing Below Deck, I read an essay by Virginia Woolf um, where she spoke about how life doesn't have these perfectly spaced out um, moments that life is really sporadic and that we do have these yeah, sort of like moments of trauma that don't sit neatly on a linear. Uh, it's, it's, I think she, she talks about walking down the street and having lampposts like, evenly spaced out and that we don't have these, uh, like, that it's not it, like the patterns in life are, uh, don't sit neatly like that um, and so I think that was yeah I you're right in that all three of my books I think have kind of centered around these yeah I guess like irregularly placed uh, landmarks that then the story pivots around but I think specifically with Below Deck um, I wrote it in four parts um, and the reason why I did that or separated it into these four parts is because I wanted the book on a sentence level and uh, like larger structural, you know, on a, like broadly speaking, um, I wanted the book to have multiple beginnings and multiple ends and for it to be broken up and fractured on a sentence level and for the whole book because I wanted to speak to the way trauma so often um, fractures our memories and warps our memories of particular experiences and to question whether that then renders them because that so often does render our experiences unbelievable or um, you know where we're made to question our experience of the truth because trauma has fractured it in a particular way and made it seem inconsistent and so I think that that was the reason why I structured it in that way where there was these uh, many beginnings and many endings, um, and that they aren't neatly tied together. Mm. Yes, Nic Nicola has a way of putting that, um, the, the meeting place between scientific endeavour and the unbordered, unbordered ephemeral space of the human mind, which I think is a really interesting way of, of looking at mm. um, everything really, but trauma in particular. Um, again, this idea that, um, you know, there is a space where in a way, and I, again, I, I think this is almost in common, I, th I think this is in common with all of your books, trauma transcends time and becomes almost um, an unbridled force, positive and negative. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's subversive in its way of undermining everything we kind of believe or know or understand about human existence as a, you know, as a, a linear progressive sort of process, at least in a colonial mm -hmm. sense. So um, in an Australian history of place, um, historic historian Mark McKenna said, for the dispossessed, there is no dividing line between the actions of past generations and those of the present. 
And again, that's another thing I think, I feel like all your work plays with this notion of dispossession. So maybe if we can come back to you, Nicola, um, and just discuss a little bit um, the idea of epigenetics with respect to trauma. Um, so um, you, you said in an interview, this is the one with Kate Foster, that incidents of uh, postnatal depression in communities that suffer endemic social trauma and difficulties like poverty and racism are staggeringly high. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, both in terms of your research into trauma, but in terms of your own postnatal depression. Um, how does time flatten and stop at that point of trauma? Um, okay, wow, there's a lot in that question. Right, I, I didn't, it's a complex one. You approach it however you want. I, I didn't extensively research um, that aspect that I talked about in that interview that you're quoting from. In, in the book itself, it was um, that I came across that reading afterwards. Um, and I think if anyone is interested in following up that, the place to go would probably be Jacqueline Rose's um, book, um, uh, now forgotten the title, um, um, Mother, I think it's Mother's, Mother, an Essay on Love and Cruelty. And she talks about um, the high rates of, the staggeringly high rates of postnatal depression um, among um, black women in post-apartheid South Africa. Um, but in terms of, time flattening out. Um, I'm not sure that I'm <laughs> the best person to talk about time right now because I am feeling like a time does, I don't even know what's happened to it um, at the moment. I'm feeling very disoriented about time. Um, but in terms of what I'm looking at in my book, I guess um, I'm, I was interested, and in, in terms of epigenetics, I was interested in this question of the way that these kind of well, I, and I guess this is what psychoanalysis is interested in broadly as a project, the, these, these kind of myths that lodge in ourselves from early, um, often traumatic experiences, um, play out in body and mind, and in that sense, eradicate real time, real chronological time. Um, and I, what, I'm in, what I was interested in, the, in in the book was in asking, um, because I was confronted with this experience in the systems that I was, you know, then sort of a part of in, in experiencing this um, catastrophic postnatal anxiety, the, the division between the way that, that these things were addressed in the um, psychological and med, kind of medicalized models, um, and the way that, you know, in the medicalized model, there was the sense of these things being genetic, neuroche neurochemical, um, and in some way sort of more containable in that way. Um, but my sense, and it continues to be my sense, is that, that um, it's a, a huge oversimplification to think of things only in such physical terms. And in fact, these traumas um, are kind of, um, they're, they're myths that are subterranean in us that, that affect our, 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 our experience of life in the now. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. Well, I think we could probably talk on it for another hour or so. Um, it's a complex topic and fascinating one as well. Um, but it'll do for the moment. Um, Maria, I know you've struggled with the way that narrative can be used to smooth out and, and retell the past. Um, so can we talk a little bit about narrative as a way of controlling silence and the role of silence to tell and not tell as it, as it plays out, perhaps an axiomatic? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking furiously thinking, this is my furiously thinking face. Um, can I say something else um, as a way of um, just distracting you from the question you asked and 
about it. But uh, I just wanted to say something just about um, kind of trauma and time, uh, not forgetting what you asked me. Um, um, that um, after after I finished axiomatic, um, you know, like Nicola talks about something she read after. It's fine if um, you know. I read something quite important to me and I, and I wish I could just rip the covers off the book and start again for another eight and a half years, which I'm sure you, Maggie, would find comforting um, too. Uh, but um, so Anne Boyer um, writes in The Undying, which is, I think, uh, one of the great books of the last 10 years for me. Um, and she writes uh, about how um, we have come to kind of talk about trauma in a particular way as something that kind of escapes language, uh, defies uh, our ability to comprehend and narrate, uh, something that is kind of uh, exists in crevices and silences and something that is kind of outside of expression. And she actually makes a point which totally like just went into my head and caused great rearrangement of thinking and great havoc, great wonderful havoc in my head. And she says, isn't the opposite the truth that in fact, pain and trauma, they are hyper expressive. That there is, you know, uh, in fact that the pain of another is like, is so powerful and so powerfully expressive that we go to great lengths to protect ourselves from it, least, lest we be undone by it. Um, and so I think um, without sort of, and I wasn't thinking at this high level um, when I was doing my work, but, but, I, but I was up against a whole lot of cliches um, around trauma, that uh, cliches of thought and cliches of language as well. And the kind of, uh, the way that uh, the idea of trauma is uh, kind of as inexpressible and outside of language, uh, how that became like a real comfort zone for the likes of me, you know, and how it has become like a very comfortable way of thinking about um, thinking about the relationship uh, between trauma and say language or the re relationship between uh, trauma and the kind of field of um, expression. Um, so uh, this was this was a kind of big revelation and I think she's very, um, very right about it. Um, so I am, you know, when you um, when you asked me about silence, I just caught myself because I, I didn't want to go into the whole trauma and silence and the whole kind of ponderous thing about it because I am actually kind of rethinking uh, my relationship with uh, the idea of language and silence in, in relation to trauma. So, but I, um, I really feel what I can say just um, in, in relation to narrative that um, there is and, and this will complicate what I've just said, quoting from M. Boy and so forth, that, um, that I, I think uh, narrative um, is often a, uh, can inflict injury. The idea that you um, press another person's life, push another person's kind of um, um, experience of being in this world and experience of being born in their family, in their postcode, in their history, whatever, if you start kind of shoving it into a, a shape of a narrative, I think all sorts of obvious and non-obvious acts of violence occur under the guise of kind of this sort of construction of narrative. So one of the ways that I was thinking about um, this whole kind of conundrum because I am writing kind of narrative nonfiction, was to kind of constantly be 
pushing myself off the firm ground of narrative and to be constantly taking the chair from under my butt uh, and, and kind of walking into the language and then walking out of language, walking into kind of a, the comforts of narrative and then dragging myself out. And, um, and, and sort of being in that very kind of unstable, volatile relationship um, and keeping that relationship volatile um, and unstable. And, uh, and another thing um, that I felt was that there is a way, you know, you um, quoted Mark McKenna and this idea of the dispossessed and they don't have the luxury of having the past, their past, leaving the past and their present be free largely from the past. But I actually think it's, it's true about everyone, right? And, and I think maybe this moment is showing to us that it is true for people uh, at all levels of privilege. Uh, but, um, but I think what privilege allows you to do is to kind of um, not, um, not to, 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 walk, to look away from, from, from this truth of kind of, of, of human experience. So I've got other things to say, but I, I will just stop. We definitely will have to have, we'll have to somehow manage a follow on because there's so much more to talk about. Um, but Sophie, mm -hmm. I, I just want to um, come back to you and picking up uh, Maria's point too about, about silence and about narrative. Um, I feel like there is a, a kind of non-linguistic um, aspect to your character, uh, Ollie, Olivia. And that's her synesthesia, her ability to see things in, in colors. And that, that color itself almost becomes an, a non-narrative way for her to experience the world. I mean, she, she keeps getting interrupted. Um, it, it's almost as if she keeps getting on a, a time track and the, that track gets interrupted by trauma. Um, and that these colors are sort of a, a different way of perceiving the world or experiencing the world. Perhaps also like being yeah. a, kind of a, a, a non-linguistic um, way of experiencing that's perhaps less violent in that sense. Yeah, less, less violent. I do. It's in, so it's interesting. I, um, I have synesthesia the same way that Ollie does. So I hear um, sound in colour and experience pain in colour as well. And so writing writing her experience of the world in that way felt very natural for me and very accessible. Um, I think so much of the book is about, is about art and different ways of seeing and different ways of imagining the world, um, at least outside of white Eurocentric Western capitalism. Um, and so like, I guess my use of, of that, of that like special way of seeing the world in the book was, yeah, I guess about trying trying to see the same story from a different angle. Um, I think also, I mean, I don't know if this is uh, like falling into the trap of um, like particular cliches around trauma and violence and especially sexual violence, but um, I think a big thing for Ollie is that she for a long time doesn't have the language with which to articulate what has happened to her. Um, and I often find with my own synesthesia that I'll experience colors that don't actually physically exist in the real world. Um, and so the, I, I guess like her way of seeing there's colors that she sees and the, um, the color of her trauma and of her, of this like trauma that has occurred to her body 
she doesn't have a like a a way to translate that that color into the world that everyone else sees there's like something about that that's unspoken um that she doesn't have language for because there's no word for the color that she sees when she um experiences sexual violence and so much of her learning i think and her journey towards reclaiming her body is about finding that language with which to articulate what has happened to her and what color she has seen i hope that made sense it did it did it made perfect sense and um again i think that's a this kind of playing with with language and i guess um you know as it sits in the prefrontal cortex um just to pick up you know nicholas um research and what is truly happening in perhaps a non-linguistic or um an almost um internal uh i guess timeless way um that is something that again i i see almost in common with all of your work but i want to pivot a little bit um there's so much more to say and we've literally scratched the surface and we're almost out of time already but i want to pivot just a tiny bit and ask each of you to just talk a little bit it's impossible to ignore um and maria i think you've touched on it a bit already but um how has coronavirus and uh, COVID-19, how has it impacted on you as, as a writer um, in, in itself? And again, Marie, you've sort of said this, but in a way, um, time has almost stopped for us. <laughs> um, at least a lot of the things that we'd scheduled are no longer able to happen and we have to try and work around those in much more organic ways um, and maybe even forcibly slow down. Um, though I haven't felt slowing, to be honest, but <laughs> maybe that'll come. So can I just get you to just go around briefly? We can just maybe start from Nicola and go down to the right um, and just talk a little bit about the impact on you and any thoughts you might have around that. Um, yeah, the impact. I mean, I'm kind of resistant to articulating anything about this um, event. I feel like it's too soon. I, I feel like we always sort of try and wrap things up immediately and kind of uh, decide on their meaning and um, it's still unfolding very much and I think will be for quite a long time but practically in terms of how it's affecting me um, it's affecting me as it is affecting I guess the luckiest of us which is that I have you know a roof over my head and I have a job for the moment and um, I have a network around me and all those things um, and I think emotionally as for everyone else it's you know it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time it's uh, you know, when real external threats come up that are awfully close to your own kind of less rational anxieties, it can be pretty disorienting. Um, mm. And of course, you know, there's the practicalities of just now trying to work out how the heck I'm going to get um, things done with two children in the house and um, my husband working from home and all those kinds of things. But yeah, it's, uh, it's very destabilizing, I guess, as it is for everyone. Sophie, your thoughts? Yeah, I um, don't think I could have put it any better than Nicola. Um, it is, yeah, incredibly destabilizing. Um, I also am very lucky to have a roof over my head um, and space, I guess, to to read and write. Um, I'm t I, this was meant to be my like busy time, I guess. Like I um, finished work as a research assistant at the end of last year, and then was kind of ready for a whole year of touring and book publicity and all of the things, exciting things that come with that. Um, and so this, I guess, like silence and space and kind of stillness has, yeah, a bit of a shock to my body. Um, but 
yeah, I'm just trying to come up with useful ways to use that and being soft with myself and um, just tr trying to make this, um, like, it almost feels like a period of absence, um, like the absence of so many things that we would ordinarily um, do and be able to do. And so I'm trying to find useful ways to spend this time. Maria? Um, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about time, which is something we've been um, talking about as well. Um, because I think um, the idea of, um, it's not only that time it has a different speed or we feel like it's stopped or slowed down or sped up or both things at the same time. But I feel like we are kind of living uh, in this kind of multiple time frames uh, at the same time. Um, in a way that's very, very explicit and laid bare. And we have, you know, there was like a, all these letters from Italy, for instance, written to those countries that are um, a couple of weeks behind, as it were, um, and or letters from China uh, addressing other countries that again are a couple of weeks behind. And um, so we just have these multiple time frames and the future is here as well and people from the future are addressing us and begging us not to be idiots and go to the beach and do all those things that make me want to be very violent with my fellow Australians but I will restrain myself because I have to be at home and uh, so I'll just direct my children um, but um, I'm not condoning violence against children. So I think I think it's it's a real moment to think about time. It's a real moment to think about love as well, and you know just to I'm 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 just I think I'm just thinking about humanity in different ways. I'm, I'm just thinking about people who just broke up with people they loved, and now you know being stuck in kind of in isolation. And there was a piece um, that. Uh, 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 a wonderful, wonderful Sally Olds pointed me to by Paul Preciado, I think in, in France, um, talking about writing love letters, that now is the moment for love letters if you find yourself in quarantine uh, without the person you love. Um, I'm thinking a lot about teachers and how teachers were thrown um, under the bus uh, by our government for so long and uh, and if the Easter break didn't intervene or is not about to intervene, God knows what would happen. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking about uh, lots of people. I'm thinking about people who don't have cars. I'm thinking about people who are on the street, etc. So uh, there is this kind of a sense that my personal boundaries are dissolving uh, and uh, and I cannot see the shape of me um, anymore, mm -hmm. which is um, kind of, you know, when I think, you know, um, I, I, I'm reading Svetlana Alexievich again, because I've asked, um, my students are reading Svetlana Alexievich this week uh, about Chernobyl, and it's such a pertinent uh, kind of um, text to read voices from Chernobyl. And, uh, and I think in moments like this, in moments of the kind of unprecedented global events, uh, we all become philosophers. So I, I think I am in that kind of place of um, kind of philosophically uh, in a tortured way, but sort of philosophically in, engaging with a sense of things crumbling around and um, kind of impossibility and necessity of hope and um, et cetera, and, and multiple timeframes as well. Mm. 
Yes, and I guess thinking of ourselves in that collective sense, almost um, you spoke about this sort of um, protective bubble of privilege, I guess, and seeing that um, dissolve in a way that, you know, maybe it still exists for some people, it's hard to believe, but, you know, at very least, we're starting to see one another in a much more collective sense, because, well, I guess our well-being depends on doing that. So, um, yes interesting times. Um, and now we really are out of time, at least in a linear, linear sense. <laughs> so um, mm -hmm. Maria, Sophie, Nicola, that was far too short, but thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, and thank you listeners for joining us. I know there's a lot of wonderful things going on online, so I appreciate you picking this one to watch. Um, and uh, I will try and talk to each of you individually as well, because there's so much more I want to talk about, but thank you very much. Thanks so thank much. Thank you.